0: Well, good morning again, Redeemer. This is, <laughs> this is the Lord's day. We are here to rejoice and to praise God, to worship him and draw near to him, for he has drawn near to us. Uh, this morning, what we're going to be talking about is Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Uh, we have finally done it. We have finally entered into the last two chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, nothing is going to stop us at this point from preventing it except death itself. let us uh, lift up our voices and seek the Lord God now before we open his word Lord we thank you for the circumstances in which we meet this morning we thank you Lord God for um, your glory and your goodness your power and your mercy we are a people of very little understanding a people who are weak and anxious people who uh, are easily frightened we pray Lord God that you would, um, through the life of Christ, through the ministry of Christ, through all that he has accomplished, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, that we would come to understand who our Savior and our King is, what he has accomplished for us, and and thereby what we can do for you, serving you, obeying you in this world. We thank you and we praise you, and amen. amen. Now last week we talked about four trials. Talked about the trial of the Sanhedrin, the trial of Jesus, the trial of Peter, and the trial of every person who reads the story. And this week now begins for us not the trial before Pontius Pilate, but the trial of Pontius Pilate. He stands before posterity, attempting in vain to avoid his responsibility. Mark's trial narrative is not deta- is not a detailed report, but a sketch, just a sketch. What is most significant to Mark is that both the Sanhedrin and the Roman governor condemned Jesus to die as the Messiah King, and their actions conformed to the will of God, to the will of God, expressed in Jesus's passion prophecy all the way back in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 through 34. This is what it says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, said Jesus. Jesus. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now, as in the case of Peter, Pilate is pushed inevitably, as we will see, towards a decision. But the decision of the Sanhedrin had already been made. Pilate was no more coerced to carry it out than Judas was coerced to betray Jesus. We will see... Pilate has very little, uh, very few options. He has very little chance of getting out of of what the Sanhedrin has set for Jesus. But it's not as if he is simply passive. It's not as if someone put a gun to his head and forced him to do it. What we are going to see is not only does he willingly do this, he's uncoerced, but this is precisely what, what the Lord our God wanted for his son. Pontius Pilate's verdict is repeated every time we repeat the Apostles' Creed which declares that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, let's. Th- this is fascinating. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles, but it summarizes their teaching, for those of you who don't know what it is. It was originally a baptismal recitation, but has become a statement of faith for Christians of every stripe for over a millennium. Imagine any other religion or school of scientists or philosophers or a political party whose members constantly repeat that their founder was put to death by the government as a threat to law and order. There is no other group that lifts up their leader who, who was succumbed to such circumstances. This is what Christians do. The cross of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Creed. The Apostles' Creed states that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's the center of it. But crucifixion was the standard Roman form of executing criminals. To say Jesus was crucified is like saying that he was hanged from a tree or was sent to the electric chair. Our Lord, our Lord, the the maker of heaven and earth, the king of the cosmos, was executed like a common criminal. And this is what we proclaim. This is what we together stand up and say, I believe, and we forcefully say it. When the ancient believers put the Apostles' Creed together, they chose to include the name of Pontius Pilate. There are only two names in the Creed. One of them is the name of the Lord, our Lord God. Makes sense. But the other name, the other name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is named in one of the central creeds of the Christian faith. And he is a thug. He is a pagan. He is a murderer. He is a corrupt local magistrate in, 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 a, in a corner of the Roman Empire. And yet we, when we say the creed, lift up his name, remember his name, mention his name. Now, the writers of the Apostles' Creed didn't say Jesus was portrayed by Judas or denied by Simon Peter. So why? Why Pontius Pilate? Why would they include Pontius Pilate of all people in the creed of the Christian faith? Well, let's look at Pilate. Let's see if we look at his life, if there's something about his life Maybe he was secretly a believer. Maybe he was secretly really into Jesus and a follower of Jesus. What, what is he known for? How is he remembered in history? Well, Pilate belonged to a special group of imperial administrators of the equestrian class, essentially what is, are, are known as Roman knights. He came to Judea in the year AD 26 as the fifth provincial prefect and remained in office for 10 years. He showed himself to be a harsh administrator who despised the Jewish people and their particular sensitivities. He hated them, he hated the things they cared about, and he hated how much they cared about them. Pilate appears in a variety of extra-biblical sources, this is interesting, as an administrator who ruthlessly and relentlessly pursued Roman authority in Judea. The Roman historian Tacitus mentions Pilate in connection with the crucifixion of Jesus, but adds very little to the gospel account but he is mentioned by a Roman historian. Now, the Jewish historian, Josephus, on the other hand, provides quite a bit of additional information about Pilate. First, Pilate arrived as the new prefect and immediately offended the Jewish people by bringing banners into Jerusalem bearing the image of Caesar. A large gathering of Jews then came to Caesarea in protest of this idolatry, fasting for five days, and Pontius responded as any good Roman go uh, magistrate would he sent in soldiers to break them up but he very quickly found out that these particular people would rather die than have these banners in jerusalem he learned very quickly but this is his introduction to the jewish people hi i'm i'm your no leader i'm now going to bring idols into your city and if you don't like it i will kill you this is the man that we mention in the creed A second incident occurred when Pilate appropriated temple funds, of all things, in order to construct a 35-mile aqueduct for Jerusalem. Again, there was a major protest. Pilate ordered his soldiers to to wear disguises and, and go out amongst the crowd, and when he stood up and gave the order, these men brought out clubs from under their cloaks and started to beat all of the Jews. This is how he ruled Judea. This is the man that we hold up in our creed. At his command, the troops using clubs, attacked the Jews and killed actually a great number of them. And then here, this is the final story that we know of this man, Josephus, or this man, Pilate, from Josephus. Now, Josephus records the story of Pilate's dismissal. In AD 36, a Samaritan false prophet, pretending to be what they called the Tahib, the Samaritan Messiah, promised to reveal himself as a Messiah by bringing out all of these secret things that Moses had had hidden in the mountains that he had become aware of. Pilate sent a heavily armed contingent of footmen and cavalry, which intercepted the pilgrims, and they slaughtered most of them. The Samaritans complained to Vitellius, the prefect of Syria, whereupon Pilate was recalled and ordered to go before the emperor Tiberius. That was the end of his political career outside of Rome. But the Christian historian, the apostle Luke, mentions a minor incident, just to put the bow on this particular present, which contributes to the same portrait of Pontius Pilate. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, some Jews tell Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. The story conforms to the accounts of Philo and Josephus. Pontius Pilate is a nasty dude. He is a wicked and evil man. His authority he wields with a sword. He is not compassionate. He is not understanding. He does not love the people that he has been called to rule. He hates them. So what does this pagan Roman regional leader have to do with Christian theology? Why is this third-rate punk, this Roman politician, enshrined in one of the most important creeds of the Christian church? Why? Why do we take any time at all to remember this person in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to turn now to Mark Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to start to unpack the story and see exactly why this person is remembered amongst the Christian church. Verse 1, it says this, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. The high priest and leadership handed Jesus over to Pilate very early in the morning, a significant indicator of the historical accuracy of this because it was necessary for the Sanhedrin to bring its business to Pilate as early as possible because legal trials in the Roman Forum were customarily held shortly after sunrise. Believe it or not, Roman gentlemen like Pontius Pilate like to do their business as early as possible because they like to, in the heat of the day, sit around and lounge uh, like a Roman um, pontiff, like (laughs) like a man about town, like a man with money. Now what's funny, uh, as far as these courts are considered, one Roman author, Seneca, noted in a wry comment, which I think this may in fact be the first lawyer joke, all these thousands hurrying to the forum at the break of day, how base their cases and how much baser are their advocates. Oof. Lawyers have never had a good reputation. That is a major reason, right, the fact that the court is held so early in the morning that the Jewish court had conducted its own proceedings in the middle of the night. They needed to get the decision about Jesus done quickly so that they were there when the co- courts opened if they waited until morning and, and arrested Jesus and held their trial they would have come too late to the forum and remember it is a holiday a high holiday now the reader can only infer from pilate's first question to Jesus are you the king of the jews that the leaders had substituted the religious charge of blasphemy with a political charge. They couldn't go to Pilate and say, hey, this guy is making himself out to be co-equal with God, and he's belittling the name of God, and he's committing blasphemy. And Pontius Pilate, who hates the ways of the Jews, would have sent them packing. He wouldn't have heard the case at all. And so what they've had to do is translate some way the charge against him into something that's really going to get Pontius Pilate engaged, Pontius Pilate involved, Pontius Pilate upset. The designation king of the Jews is a secularized form of Messiah, which permitted Jesus' messianic claim to be transposed into a political charge. Now, the chief accusation was that Jesus was guilty of high treason against the Roman government. Right. Forget you, Pontius Pilate. Forget the emperor. This man is saying that he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Now, the Sanhedrin certainly recognized that the words king of the Jews conveyed an understanding completely different than the designation of Messiah, but this is a murder trial, and facts only get in the way. The term king now takes a prominent place in the story. It occurs six times throughout chapter 15. And by sending Jesus to, uh, to Pilate bound, presumably with an armed guard, they're making it appear as if de- uh, Jesus is extremely dangerous, very volatile, and, and he must be watched. This is a dangerous man we're bringing you. See, we bound him. See, there's an armed guard. This is, this is a man who wants to overthrow the Roman government. Now, it is I, ironic to the extreme that failing to be the Messiah that they wanted, they wanted a Messiah that would take on Rome. They wanted a Messiah that would slay the Roman legions. They wanted a Messiah that was a nationalistic um, for, you know, fervent for nationalism, fervent for Judaism, fervent for the, the people of Israel. That's what they wanted, and Je- that's not what Jesus was. And yet, when they bring him to Pilate to have him put to death, that's exactly what they accuse him of being. Jesus responds to Pilate with a vague affirmation. His answer is very vague. His answer is the kind of answer you get from a teenager when you ask them if they did their homework, or if they're hungry, or, hey, how are you doing? It's very vague. He responds to Pilate in, in a way where he, he's, he's trying to show the fact that what Pilate thinks a king is and what Jesus thinks a king is aren't the same thing. He says, yeah, if you say so. It's really uncommittal. And this, this, is, why, this, this is why the trial continues. If Jesus would have just said yes, uh, Pilate would have immediately moved to sentencing. He would have gotten all the information. But you can tell that the answer is super vague because now Pilate turns to the accusers and he he wants information. He doesn't have enough yet to sentence Jesus to death. Surrounded by unbelief and hostility, here these people are piling accusation on top of accusation. And Pilate can tell that it's all nonsense. He can tell that this person, Jesus, hasn't done all of these things that they're accusing him of. So he turns to Jesus and now he wants to hear from Jesus. And Jesus says nothing. Jesus is silent. Jesus manifests the exalted and sublime silence of the suffering servant of God found in Isaiah 53, verse 7. And this silence is wholly unusual, right? What Pontius Pilate is used to are Jews who get really excited and start screaming at one another and accusing one another and starting riots. That's their whole thing. That's why he's there. These are people who love a riot. And here... Right In a culture of, of men who are, in Pilate's opinion, un, unruly, rebellious, chaotic, here is a man calmly standing there, not caring very much about the accusations made. He has nothing to say. This is high, highly unusual in the forum, and it demonstrates a presence and a dignity which frankly puzzles Pilate. He doesn't know what to make of this Jesus person. He's so unlike his own people. Now, nevertheless, without a defense, it would have been necessary for Pilate to have pronounced against Jesus at this point. But what we're going to see is that he doesn't really think Jesus is guilty of anything. Now, uh, what he doesn't do is just stop the trial and say this man is innocent and send him away. What he's going to try to do is play politics now. He's going to now turn from the accusers of Jesus to the crowd, and he's going to try, like most sycophants do, to appeal to the mob and score some cheap points on the Sanhedrin. Right? He's trying to avoid taking responsibility and making a decision. So we carry on with the story. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Right? Let one of our people go like you usually do. to satisfy the crowd, or wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Now here what we see is there's still an opportunity to escape responsibility for a final decision by the custom of releasing a political prisoner amid the festival. The perversity of human nature is clearly seen in this. On the one hand, Pilate genuinely wishes to escape from a difficult position by releasing Jesus. On the other hand, though, he cannot resist getting his own back on the Jewish leaders who have brought to him this difficult situation. He knows the leaders want him dead. He's assuming because um, these people are so rebellious that if he wants to release Jesus, that's the person that they're going to want released because they love a rebel. The mob has been deliberately inflamed by the temple authorities, composed most likely of the followers and servants of the high priest. Now, Pilate's way of petty vengeance is to taunt them with the accusation of kingship. He keeps bringing it up. This is your king. This is your king. This is your king. Pilate's efforts to rescue Jesus weren't dictated by justice and humanity. We cannot for a moment be confused. (laughs) Pontius Pilate suddenly has a crisis of conscience or suddenly, right, deep down he's a good guy. He's this uh, faithful pagan who's trying to be just and and right and, and good. That's not what's going on. He appeals to the mob to show up the Jewish leaders. That's why he's doing it. But the Jewish leaders are ahead of him. The Jewish leaders are prepared for such a move. The predominant motive of Pilate's actions was undoubtedly that anti-Semitic hatred for them, their ways, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations as a people, their their independence, their religious beliefs. It did not require deep understanding on Pilate's part to realize that the Sanhedrin were not acting out of loyalty to Rome in any way, shape, or form. That's not why they're there. They're not concerned, right, for the the, um, decency and respect of Rome. Oh, we found this rebel and you guys ought to put him to death because we love Rome so much. He gets that that's not why they're there. These are not good Samaritans. These are not good citizens. They are not faithful followers of the emperor of Rome. They, they clearly want to get rid of a rival and intend to use him to do it. They're using him. Oh, is it not on That's all right. Did it happen a while ago? What would be really funny is if they could still see us. tech support right on location here. Eat your heart out. Is it our internet connection? Is it our internet connection? Everybody at home in the neighborhood is sucking the life out of it. No, I, I meant like the people in the neighborhood here. Yeah. Yeah. I have my cup of coffee. for truth and justice of Pilate. He does not care about truth. He does not care about justice. And and what sometimes happens is people make him seem like this reasonable-minded, stoic, philosophical Roman. That is not the case. He is ruthless, blood-sucking, wicked, He knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he's going to flog him, he's going to crucify him, simply through a desire to ingratiate himself to a mob. That is the kind of man that he is. And and this is what dictators always do. They don't mind feeding the mob, right, one man at a time, as long as it keeps them popular. This is is how communism works. This is how uh, Rome worked. This is how evil dictatorships always work. They don't care who they have to feed to the crowd in order to keep the crowd happy because they're all a bunch of blood-sucking vampires. No doubt Marx's readers could think of parallels from their own experience in times of persecution that they had experienced under Roman magistrates. Because this is fallen man's form of government, tyranny by threat of death, through lies and murder and injustice. Those who have power don't give it up and, 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 and seek to retain it and seek to keep it by sacrificing whoever they have to sacrifice. If you read a book, there's a great book um, called the um, Gulag Archipelago about communism and and how many people uh, that they, they stole right off the street. They, they have this entire system of slavery in order to keep the communist system running. And and they would just come and they would, and, and in, in the book he talks about how there was entrances into this sewer system right, on every corner in the empire. Now, even if we affirm the mob's preference for the patriotic barabbas right they see in barabbas somebody who's willing to kill somebody who's willing to rise up they see in barabbas the kind of leader that they want even if you adjust for that it is hard to see then how they turn this crowd and demand a roman death for jesus why why not just say flog him and let him go why are they seeking to murder him This is what mob rule looks like. There's no wisdom to it. There's no justice to it. It's just, right, however a large group of people feel at this particular moment. Beheading was the Roman death for a citizen, crucifixion for a slave or a foreigner. Stoning was the Jewish death sentence, going all the way back to Joshua chapter 7, verse 25. Once dead, the criminal's body was hung on a tree until the evening, as in Joshua chapter 10, verse 26. This to the Jew was a sign that the one who had died was under the wrath and curse of God, according to Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three. So in God's providence, the cross, besides all of its Roman associations of shame and a slave's death, and had a deeper Hebrew meaning of God's curse. This is what Paul explains in Galatians chapter three verses thirteen through fourteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is what Jesus, right? This is what God is going for. He wants Jesus to be hung on on a, on a tree. He wants him to be cursed. That's the point. The cross was a political symbol, though. We, What has happened to the cross is that it has all this meaning for us now. We understand it, given the New Testament, given the Holy Spirit, given our comprehension because of God's mercy and grace. The the cross has become a symbol of a very different kind. But at, at the time that Jesus is standing there in this trial, it was a political symbol. Pilate knew, the crowds knew, the chief priests knew, Jesus knew it, and the readers, the original readers of Mark knew it. It was the ultimate symbol of Roman power. It said, we are in charge, And this is what happens to people who get in our way, guilty or not. It was like the guillotine, like the firing squad. It's a symbol of tyranny and rage and wrath and murder and injustice. The Romans crucified thousands of rebels, rebel Jews, when Jesus was a small boy, not far from where he lived in Galilee. They would crucify thousands more when they took Jerusalem in AD 70. So many, so many, they crucified so many people that they got bored. They experimented with hanging people up in different positions in different ways so they would look funny to kind of entertain themselves until they literally ran out of wood. Crosses were the foundation on which the Roman Empire was constructed because death and, and wickedness and injustice is always the foundation of every empire. Mark's original hearers were well aware of this, and we have to keep that in mind. It was the nature of their own experiences. Pilate does not care about holding a fair trial. His main aim is to get through the Passover season without riots, without social upheaval, and as often and as much as he can demonstrate the power and authority of Rome. And he does not want to kill this man particularly, but he doesn't care because there are other things that he cares a great deal more about. This wasn't a particularly bad day for Roman provincial justice. If you look at the annals of Roman history, this isn't uncommon. This is business as usual. Business as usual for all secular governments, retaining or expanding power, putting down rivals, injustice, murder, corruption, profiting selfishly from another's suffering. I could mention three congressmen who made a great deal of money once they found out the coronavirus was coming because they sold off. Just so happens on the same day they had the secret meeting about what COVID-19 was like. They sold off stock and made millions. That is the kind of government men come up with to rule one another. Wicked, unjust, selfish. Jesus had spoken of his death as upending this kind, of, this kind of power. These kinds of power structures. And now he is actually doing it. This is the moment, the hour that he asked the father to take away from him. The hour that was coming, the hour that he's resigned himself to, that he's now passively engaged in, is the hour in which he topples these wicked governments forever. Mark reminds us again and again throughout this chapter, six times in 32 verses Jesus died as the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate might have flogged a delinquent prophet if he was causing trouble. He would have dismissed a blasphemy case with a flick of his hand. But would be kings are political trouble. He tries to get out of this, but he can't because of what they're accusing him of is too serious. This was the charge that he had to take notice of, if though he, even though he knew that Jesus wasn't leading the normal sort of messianic revolt. It doesn't matter. The government does not want rivals. Mark's readers were persecuted for declaring that there was a greater Lord than Caesar. That's what was going on in their world. And any time Christians step up and actually claim that there is somebody higher than whoever the highest authority is in their land, this is what it leads to. And when there's peace between wicked governments and Christians, the reason is because we have given away the crown rights of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's crown rights are always a threat to the government of men, whether it's self-government of an individual or those men governing other men. It is always a threat to our autonomy. It is always a threat to our own control and our own power. Now, Mark wants to be sure that we think of Jesus' death in terms of his messiahship, a confrontation with the power structures of this world, whether it's your power and control of yourself or the power and control that men have over other men. There is a new king in town, and his kingdom is utterly and completely different than any other kingdom that, involving men in the history of the world. This is what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pilate, having symbolically washed his hands of the matter, perhaps the goofiest gesture of all time. Oh, I'm going to murder this guy, but don't worry. I've got this bucket of water I'm going to splash my hands in, and it's okay, it's not really me who's doing it. This is exactly the kind of figly faith nonsense that humans always attempt. Oh, I'm just going to wash my hands with this water, and it's like I... Ooh, magically I never committed the sin. What is happening to Jesus' kingdom mission, though? What, what is going on here? This is God's rescue operation. This is the ministry that Jesus had begun in Galilee when he's talking about overthrowing the strong man. He's standing here being falsely accused, and he says nothing in his own defense. Everything, however, is going according to God's plan as we see in two themes that emerge in this passage. First, Jesus is utterly silent. That's not just a detail, like a random detail that they have thrown in. Mark is pointing to Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, if that's true, which it is, then Isaiah fifty three twelve is also true, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, he, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Intercession for the transgressors. Mark is showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the servant king, the propitiation for sinners to satiate God's wrath. He is the one who comes and serves. He is the one who comes and exchanges his life for your life. And that is a radically different kind of kingdom because Pilate's kingdom is your life for mine. I'm going to put you to death in order to retain my position, to retain my popularity, and to retain (laughs) the stability of of the community. Second, furthermore, Jesus is absolutely innocent. Even Pilate knows this. He hasn't been leading a revolt. He hasn't been stirring up rebellion or fomenting a coup. Yet here he is going off, and, and this is crucial. Jesus is going off to meet that fate, the total destruction at the hands of Rome that in his Olivet Discourse he pronounced over the Jewish people. He said, right, he said, beware because what's going to happen is Rome is going to come here and utterly and completely destroy Israel. And here is Jesus going before Israel taking upon himself that same curse. He is going to be utterly destroyed by Rome in order to save Israel. He's He's living out the history of Israel, even its conclusion. Jesus is determined to take Israel's fate upon himself, to deliver her from it, to bring about God's kingdom of healing and forgiveness. Jesus will take upon himself the fate of Israel at the hands of Rome. And this will be the escape route for every Jew who turns from being this mob to Jesus, who turns from disobedience to obedience, to unbelief to belief. You too, right, will will avoid the destruction that's coming if you hide yourself in the ark, and Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the way forward. Jesus is the path through the destruction and wickedness and evilness of men. Therefore, within Mark's story, what we find here is a deeply personal meeting, meaning. The disobedience of not just a wayward people exchanged with the Son of God, Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying the people of God were going to exchange their wickedness for the, for the righteousness of Christ. He is going before her so that she doesn't have to do it, so that she doesn't have to suffer at the hands of Rome. He will suffer at the hands of Rome. But then we turn, and there's an even more intimate story going on, the individual exchange of a murderous rebel with the faithful son of God. This is why the brigand Barabbas plays such a significant part in this story. And, and this is what is so fascinating about this when we read it, what we typically do is we see ourselves as the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's not untrue. That's not untrue. But what we often fail to do is we fail to see that we are Barabbas. This is the gospel in miniature. This is a story where someone, Barabbas, deserves to die, and Jesus dies instead. That was Barabbas's cross. He had been arrested. He had been convicted of murder. He... In an insurrection of all things, he is going to be nailed to that cross, and Jesus takes his place. Barabbas was a typical Jewish rebel, what we today would call a terrorist. He was determined to stop at nothing nothing no matter who he had to kill, who he had to overthrow to bring about the kingdom that he desired and and, and compare him to Jesus now who's look at what he's willing to do to bring about his kingdom now. Jesus had called back in chapter 11, the temple, a safe house of brigands, a den of robbers. And that is exactly what Barabbas is. He is a robber. And so of course the temple mob comes down and they recognize their own. They see Barabbas as one of theirs and they want him because they don't recognize Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. The battle lines are here drawn. And this is what Jesus tells us about what's going on in John chapter 8, verse 44. He describes exactly the battle lines here. He says to the Jewish leaders, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The mob wants to murder Jesus. They want instead the Barabbas the murderer to be freed. Pilate, the murderous representative of an all murder, the murderous representative of all murderous tyrannical governments, doesn't mind murdering a known innocent to maintain public order and retain power and popularity. What we have is the innocent Jesus standing in, in, in amongst a bunch of murderers, a bunch of murderers. The crowd is showing what kind of king they have, and it's, he's an awful lot like Satan. His mouth is full of lies, and in his heart is nothing but murder. And in this, we have to see ourselves. We are this murdering crowd. Why do the Sanhedrin want to put him to death? Because of envy. And James says what? Envy is what leads us to murder. Now, okay, Mike, whoa, whoa, Mike. <laughs> I get it, yes. I rejected Jesus, too. That's why I'm part of, if I were in this story, I'd be the crowd. But you're going a little far with the murder charge here, sir. Because that, that's how it is, right? When people defend themselves about being sinners, they're like, well, you know, what I've never done is committed murder. There, I, I, know, I, I know I have some things I need to work on. I'm really hoping Jesus, my therapist, really helps me get over the hump and, and you know finally reform my ways and get a little healthier and get a little better, be a little more loving. What we fail to see is that we are murderers, that our hearts are full of all the things that when they come out of us in expression, is murder. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's it. That's all it takes. In, in the law of God, the holiness of God, right? we want to justify ourselves because I've never taken out a knife and stabbed anybody. I never walked into any place and shot a bunch of people I didn't know. I'm not like these folks. This, that's insane to compare me to them. And yet you have sat there, and in your heart, what it was filled with was hatred. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And everybody goes, Woo, man. Oh, thanks, Jesus. I, feel, I just feel so much better now that you put it out there. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus, cares. he continues. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Anger? Judgment? Insult? This is what he's comparing to murder? Well that that's an awful high standard. I mean, if that's the standard, my goodness, we're all Barabbas. Yes, yes, hate and anger Calling your brother a fool. These are all forms of murder. Murder committed in secret. Murder committed in our hearts. But it doesn't stay there, does it? Because this is what James says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have? So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Your warring passions, coveting, envying, selfish prayers, this is what leads to quarrels and anger and hatred, murder, all. All forms of murder. Lies and murder are the heart of idolatry going all the way back to Edom and it's no different for the people in this crowd, it's no different than for Barabbas and it's no person different for any person who's sitting here listening to me preach this sermon right now. The kingdoms of men are kingdoms of lies and murder. Look at the history of man. Look at your own life from the Roman Empire to communist China to the, all of you sitting in Washington State. Lying murderers, all of you. Now, reading the story of the freed murderer and the innocent man crucified, what we are reading is the gospel. It should not be hard for us to identify with Barabbas, and yet it is. It's so hard. We want to be this passive, nameless crowd who hasn't really committed a sin. They're just there, and they're not really into Jesus. And that's kind of how we want our rebellion to seem. Like, we're just not into him. We'd rather have somebody else. But we are Barabbas. We ought to view this story with awe- awesome an awestruck gaze of people who think, that is me. I, too, am a murderer and a liar. Satan was my father. I deserved a rebel's death, a murderer's death. We ought to look at Barabbas and say, but for the grace of God, that would be me. And this is, what, this is Mark's point. God's grace, God's sovereign and saving exchange of his son for murderous rebels is exactly what we are witnessing in this story because that is the gospel of the son of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said this our acquittal is in this, that the guilt which made us liable to punishment was transferred to the head of the son of God. We must specially remember this substitution in order that we may not be all our lives in trepidation and anxiety as if The just vengeance which the Son of God transferred to Himself were still impending over us. We have to know how bad we are. And and we have to know how good the Son is. And we have to know that that exchange occurred. We have to believe it. We have to know it. We have to understand it. We have to live in light of it. You really are as bad as this. Jesus really is this good. There really was an exchange. You do not have to live in fear. You do not have to live in trepidation or with anxiety because Jesus Christ took your punishment, Barabbas. He took your cross. He died on it. He suffered in your place. Pontius Pilate stands in the middle of the Apostles' Creed because Jesus is the Messiah, the God-man, the incarnate Son of God who entered real human history and overthrew the governments of man to establish a new government. He overthrew the governments of self-government, and the government of men over men. He overthrew it. We need to remember that this isn't a myth. This is not some metaphysical thing that we can sit down and simply argue about. This is historical fact. The reason that he chose Pontius Pilate is is, is also the reason why there's so much history written about Pontius Pilate. This is not something that we just sit down. (laughs) It's not just mindless, uh, disembodied theology that we're talking about. Our God came down from heaven and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, who's Pontius Pilate? Well, let's go to the history books and we can see. Oh, we can see exactly when it was. We can see exactly where it was. It is a fact. Our faith is not a myth. It is not conjecture. It is the story of God coming into human history as the suffering servant king to exchange himself for sufferers and sinners, liars and murderers all. Pontius Pilate reminds Christians that what stands at the heart of our faith is the exchange of Christ for a sinner in human history. That's the center of human history. And it's the story every time someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ. It is the story every time someone gets on their knees and confesses their sin and cries out to mercy in God. It's an exchange. It's the story. It's historical. It's real. It's here. It's now. It is the forever glory of Jesus Christ. This gives certainty to our hope. We recite that what was done in human history with eyes on those promises of justice and reconciliation and peace which, peace, which we yearn to see. We want to see these wicked governments overthrown. We want to see the self-government that is so wicked and selfish overthrown. And when we come to Jesus, we have certainty because we see this story, because we recite the creeds, that this is something that he actually does and has done and will do whenever we come to him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the story of Mark. This is the creed of the Christian church. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the story of Pontius Pilate. We thank you that Christ stood in his place. We, we thank you, Lord God, that we are invited to, to, to this same exchange. We are murderers and liars. We are selfish. We are wicked. We are self-governing. We are opposed in every way. In our desires, and in our minds to the, to the will of God and the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we go from here today, that we would submit to the Lord Jesus, that we, we would know with certainty what he has accomplished on our behalf, and that we would live out this truth, this reality, and, and declare it with our lives to all of those people who are still stuck in slavery and bondage. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen.